0: it. So he's he's doing better today than he was yesterday. So I'm happy to say that because uh, he's, he's been pretty sick too. And the one in the most trouble, of course, is Sharnel. And I know all our prayers are going up for her. Uh, I got a report from Nelson who had talked to his daughter Tracy, her sister this morning about, oh, it's only been maybe an hour, hour and a half ago when he talked to her. But uh, Charnel is still in uh, extremely critical condition. <clears throat> she has a secondary infection uh, with the COVID. Uh, does have some pneumonia there. As we know, COVID does attack the lungs pretty heavily in a lot of cases. So she has been on oxygen for some time and is on the ventilator of course which it helps give the the oxygen I know I've had a concern about ventilators uh, in the past but I think one reason they've had such a high mortality with ventilators is because the people were in such bad shape when they got on the ventilator that they didn't recover so it may not be so much the ventilator problem as it is the condition of the people once they get there. Anyway, uh, they decided to put her on it so that it could keep her breathing until she gets where she can breathe on her own. So they're putting her in and out of sleep. Uh, They need her to move around some, and she's mostly on her back now. She was on the stomach a lot. But they want her to move as much as she can, so they bring her out of it, and they do have a feeding tube, so everything is uh, looking pretty good except for the lung problem, which is a critical issue. So uh, we need to continue, obviously, to pray very diligently for Charnel that God will see fit to heal her and bring her out of this, because uh, she's quite quite ill, and there's nothing much more to say than that, I guess. I think two more of her sisters are coming in uh, to help relieve Tracy and, and uh, be with her because I know some, somebody, just having somebody there can mean an awful lot, and the, the hospitals are very restrictive right now and have been for some time. And in many cases, we'll only allow one person in and out, but apparently, uh, I don't know what's happened there, but they're allowing Tracy and Nelson, apparently, and maybe the sisters as well can be in with her part of the time, and maybe they recognize she needs that company. So uh, the family is pretty much, I think, taking care of, of that, and I don't think it would be wiser advisable for any of us to try to get in there at this point. Uh, let the family handle it. They are very concerned in doing all they can. And the best thing we can do for her is fast and pray. That's the best we can do. And that's the thing to do is be close with God. I have often thought that Probably we would have to go through some of the things that Israel went through with Egypt before he made a separation, and I've often pondered that as to how much we would go through along with the people of the nation before God would make a separation. So we still don't know that for sure, but we do know that we are to rejoice in our trials, our troubles, our tribulations even our chastenings, because they show that God is there, He's working with us, He wants us to do well, and He gives us tests and trials and difficulties to prove us, to test us, to teach us, to guide us and lead us, because without adversity, without trouble, uh, we often simply will not and cannot grow. So He gives trials to us as a group, he gives trials to us individually, and Charnell is certainly going through a very serious trial, and as our sister, we're going through it with her as much as we can comprehend and and feel uh, for her and pray for her. So, uh, let's not let up, let's be sure that she has all the help from us that we can give her, because we do love her and care about her and want to see her up and well and among us as soon as possible. We're going to get back to the book of Micah today. I finished up chapter 5 last week, the end of which indicates that God is going to cut off the cities of our land and throw down our strongholds, meaning our defenses, our military. will all be destroyed before our very eyes. Witchcraft will be gone. He'll cut off the gods that we worshipped, that is, our materialism and satanic views and so on. He says in verse 15 of chapter 5, "...I will execute vengeance and anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard." It's going to be far worse than what we have heard about before and the wars that have gone on before. We very well know uh, from the testimony in Hosea about Ephraim that we are in the sights of this, number one and foremost, as the firstborn son, which God proclaimed in Jeremiah 31, that Ephraim would become the firstborn, and certainly we have and have had the blessings of the firstborn. But we have not been what we should be. So one-third will die of famine and pestilence. We're seeing some of that pestilence come, and famine is not far away. And then taken into captivity, a third killed by the sword, and a third taken captive, and a sword after them, as per Ezekiel 5. So what he's saying here in Micah very much parallels those scriptures back there, uh, including Isaiah, whom uh, he was contemporary with. And Isaiah has some of the same things to say. So with that background, we'll get into chapter 6 now. But I want to intersperse uh, a thought here in terms of an article. I read this just this morning on the Steve Quayle site. Uh, we've discussed EMP attacks where they uh, use a small nuke to set off uh, waves that will destroy electrical grids. And Russia recently knocked down one of their own defunct satellites with one and alarmed the U.S. But an EMP attack could shut off the power grid and leave this nation absolutely helpless. Uh, without it and without uh, destroying the infrastructure that is here. And I've wondered how that might happen. And also, in still considering Daniel 8, which I think, uh, if I'm reading it right, indicates we may attack Iran, the Persians, uh, and break their horn. And then it says we'll have our horn broken. I have really no doubt that we are the ram from the east. The push, or from the west that pushes to the east without touching the ground through our air force. But that is in there to happen, and it appears to be our attack on Iran. Now, we're getting into a position here where our military is being dismantled, and we are subject to attack at any time now from China, Russia, and others, And how could this work out? And somebody put together a scenario which makes some sense to me, and it could happen in just such a fashion or very nearly this. So I'll just summarize it. Uh, Iran has wanted to see the nation of Israel destroyed for a long time, and Israel is constantly talking about the threat from Iran and attacks Iranian positions in Syria and so on, off and on. So there's steadily an animosity continuing to build there. Well, here is the scenario that they said could happen that sets off and ends, really, World War III, is that Iran makes good with their threats and hits Israel with a, uh, an EMP attack and other attack, perhaps, as well, but knock out their electricity, and the Israelis in would become pretty much helpless with that kind of an attack. Well, we have enough Zionist Jews who say they are Jews but are not in Washington that are on the Israeli-Israel side that I think we would come to Israel's aid in a hurry, and maybe dispatch our aircraft carriers and most of our military to uh, counter this nuclear attack and threat from Iran on Israel and to save Israel's bacon. Well, then Russia and China, North Korea, would just sit back and wait until we had committed our military uh, to protect the nation of Israel. Uh, then North Korea could hit South Korea and Japan. China could strike Taiwan, which is they've been threatening to do now for quite some time and building up to do, as has North Korea against South Korea and their enemy, the Japanese. So those, those are two logical things that could happen when the United States power and interest is diverted, and then Russia, who's been making threats against Europe, could hit European NATO without the U.S. air for defending it, and these battles and pressures that have been building would suddenly be released. Then once that's under control, if necessary, and it probably would be because we are to be attacked, China, Russia, North Korea would then attack the United States, possibly with the small uh, nukes which would destroy our electrical grid and we would be helpless. We could not ship food. We could not transact business without the Internet, without computers, without electricity. This nation would fold up like a paper bag if this were to happen, they could then come in and invade us and destroy us, as the scriptures indicate, is going to happen. So whether or not it will happen exactly that way or not, I do not know. But uh, all of those battles that I just spoke of are being prepared, even as we speak, and the pressures are building day by day. So that could fulfill Daniel 8, as I think it may need to be, as well as uh, bring our own demise, which the scriptures are very clear about. So let's get into chapter 6 then with that uh, background, because God uh, continues with his woe against Israel, which is what this book is to, is Israel and to Judah as well. Hear you now what the Eternal says. Arise, contend you before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. So this is a warning to those high in government and those low in government. Uh, Mountains don't really listen and they don't react, so that's metaphoric. It's speaking to the peoples who are in leadership positions. Again, hear you. O mountains, the Eternal's controversy, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Eternal has a controversy with His people, and He will plead with Israel. So God is angry; He intends to uh, punish, but He will plead with Israel. Please repent, and we will not. He says, O my people, what have I done to you? And wherein have I wearied you? Testify against me. What do we have against God? What has he done that would cause us to turn from him and follow satanic doctrines and beliefs to follow material goals instead of spiritual goals? What has God ever done to us that was bad? Nothing. Ever. And that's how he's pleading. Why have you turned from me? You had no reason to. So he reminds us then, verse 4, For I brought you up out of the land of Mithraim, and redeemed you out of the house of servants, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So he gave them leaders... Uh, Aaron and Miriam had some problem with Moses, but they got over that, and God dealt with them. And they can still be listed as true leaders of Israel back in those days. So he said, I brought you out of slavery. What kind of complaint you got against that? What was so bad about that? Then he gives another example. Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Eternal. Now this is one that I want to spend a little bit of time on here, because God brings it up, and it's an unusual one. Uh, He often brings up, through the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament, and even the New Testament, remembrances of him delivering us out of Mitzriam, or Egypt. But here's one he threw in that uh, is mentioned a time or two or three, but not like uh, uh, that deliverance there from Egypt. It's back in Numbers 22, and I think I'll turn back there and uh, try to kind of quickly glance through this and pick up the story uh, so that we kind of keep it in mind. Uh, And the reason I'm doing this is because in chapter 4, in verse 14, it talks about that this example of Balak and Balaam is for God's people in the latter days. And here we are having it rehearsed, or God bringing it up, in Micah, which is a book very definitely for the latter days, and a book in which we're seeing Things already happening before our very eyes, so those prophecies are coming to pass—not just something for the future, but are happening right now. So the setting here is that uh, Israel was doing well, prospering, and he, he had, or they had, around them Moab, the Amorites, and Moab became very, very concerned about Israel and afraid of Israel. So he sent to Balaam, in verse 5, to the son of Beor in Pethor, and uh, he said to him, Behold, or sent word, there is a people come out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against me. I want you to come curse this people, and that so we can smite them and drive them out of the land. And I wish that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed, in the verse 6. Now, this is an end time, or latter day prophecy, uh, as confirmed in chapter 24, verse 14. And this is being set up right now. We have moved out among uh, these peoples, because he says his remnant Israel will be among Uh, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the uh, uh, Edomites, Esauites, in the end times, and Isaiah 15, 16, and many other scriptures deal with them and what will happen to them and show that they are involved with God's remnant, spiritual Israel, in the end time. So that's the way it was here uh, when Balaam approached these people, in behalf of the Gentile king. The Midianites were also there, and that plays into the story at the end when Phineas helps out. But he wanted them to be cursed. So verse 7, The elders of Moab and the Midian departed with rewards of divination in their hand. They came to Balaam and spoke to him. So what they did was brought money, gifts, to give him, which was the price of divination. In other words, we want you to divine what can happen here and give us a positive report to take back to Balak so that Israel can be cursed and destroyed. Uh, And then Balaam told him he'd speak to God and see what he had to say. In verse 9, God came to Balaam and said, What men are with you? And he told them uh, uh, from Moab and that these people had said that they'd come out of Egypt. So God said to Balaam in verse 12, You shall not go with them, you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. And here he's speaking of his people Israel. Don't you curse Israel, I have blessed them, he tells Balaam. And Balaam rose up in the morning and told the princes of Balak to get back to their land. God refuses to give me permission to go with you. Uh, and they went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come. So he sent more princes and more honorable men than they. He's moving this thing on up the scale. Sixteen, they came to Balaam and said, Uh let nothing hinder you from coming to Balak, for I promote you to very great honor, and I will do whatsoever you say to me. Come therefore, I pray you, curse me, this people. Second time he's asked, and he's offering more. Uh, Balaam said, no, I can't go, you could give me a house full of silver and gold, and I can't go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now, Balaam is uh, censured in the New Testament for not being a man of God and going for the price of reward, and you can see him vacillating here. He knows he needs to be true to God, and yet he wants the money. So he's in a situation where he's trying to negotiate and get from God what he wants, give to Balak what he wants, and him come out on top. That was his overall attitude. So he gave lip service to God, but he wasn't really worshiping God. We have a nation today to some degree giving lip service to God the less and less as time goes on, and yet refusing to obey. Just as Balaam was, and we're told not to be like Balaam. So he he tells them in verse 19, just what more he says. So God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men come to call you, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say to you, that shall you do. I let you go, God concedes this, but you can only say what I tell you to say. his ass and led with the princes of Moab. I don't know whether they came to him at all or not, or whether he just saddled up and went to them and said, let's go, which God had not said. Anyway, God's anger was kindled because he went. He didn't want him to go. He gave permission if they asked him to again, but he wasn't happy with it. He didn't like Balaam's attitude. And the angel of the eternal stood in the way for an adversary against him, and he was riding his ass, and his two servants were with him. And God sent the angel, and the ass saw him there and turned aside, so Balaam smacked him, and then the angel changed positions where Balaam tried to go, and uh, again the ass saw the angel of the Lord and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, And the angel then went further, verse 26, and stood in a narrow place where there wasn't any way to go right or left. And when this ass saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he smote the ass with a staff. And then the (laughs) wonderful story that we've all heard, the Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you smitten me these three times? And Balaam said to the ass, Because you've mocked me, I would there were a sword in my hand, for now would I kill you. Interesting here, Balaam must have been so out of sorts, so angry, so out of his head, that he didn't really recognize that this donkey was talking. this after realizing he had been duped and tricked into actually having a conversation with the donkey, but whatever. So it wasn't over. The Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've smitten me these three times? Now remember what God said there in Micah? What have I done to you? What have I done to make you smite me? Balaam said to the ass, you mocked me, uh, we we read that, and the ass said to Balaam, am I not your ass upon which you have ridden ever since I was yours to this day? Was I ever one to do so to you? And Bala- Balaam said, well, no, no, guess you weren't, he's still talking to this ass. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn on his hand, and he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. When there's a righteous angel, that's what you do. When it's Satan and his demons, you fall over backward. Verse 32, the angel of the Lord said to him, Wherefore have you smitten your ass these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand you, because your way is perverse before me. So he corrects him very strongly there. The ass saw me, turned from me three times. Unless she had turned from me, surely now also I had slain you and saved her alive. The ass was better than Balaam. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I knew not that you stood in the way against me. Now therefore, if it displease you, I will get me back again. This is mock obedience, because he didn't really follow through. Anyway, verse 35, the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak to you, that you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. God was working out something here, and he was going to go ahead and use Balaam, since he was in a lousy attitude anyway, to get done something that he wanted established in spite of Balaam, but he used Balaam as an instrument, just as he used Satan as an instrument against Job, and has used Satan as an instrument against us, and he certainly is doing everything he can right now to destroy us. I do believe that. So we pray to God. Verse 36, And when Balak heard that Balaam was come, he went out to meet him to the city of Moab, uh, which is in the border of Arnon, which is in the utmost coast. Now we know that Moab and Ammon were the children of the daughters of, or children of Lot and his daughters. And I think, uh, comprise a fair percentage of the Mormon population of Utah and Idaho and other places today. Uh, Moab, Ammon, and Edom, who will be dealing with God's, uh, separated remnant few who build his temple here shortly. And this has to do with them here in the end time. And Balak said unto Balaam, Did I not earnestly send you to call you? Wherefore came you not to me? Am I not able indeed to promote you to honor? So Balaam is in trouble with God. (sighs) Now he's kind of in trouble with Balak as well for not getting there front and center when he wanted him to. So Balaam said to him, Lo, I came to you, have I now any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that shall I speak. So we went with him, and Balak offered all kinds of gifts. Down twenty three then Balaam said to Balak, Build me here seven altars, and he's gonna make this Contrived worship of God and so on, and make a show. Uh, And he told Balak to uh, stand by the burnt offering in verse 3, and he'd go and talk to God. So, verse 4 God met Balaam, and he said to him, I have prepared seven altars, and offered upon every altar a bullock and a ram. And the eternal put a word in Balaam's mouth, and said, Return to Balak, and here's what you say. So he returned. And there was Balak standing by the burnt offering. And he took up his parable and said, Balak, king of Moab, have brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come curse me, Jacob, and come defy Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How shall I defy whom the eternal has not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone, and shall not be reckoned among the nations, who can count the dust of Jacob. So he's talking Jacob up here in Israel and trying to convince Balak that uh, really it'd be better if you just kind of go away, uh, because there's trouble here. But they did this again, and down in verse 18, He took up his parable and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Hearken to me, you son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. As he said, and shall he not do it? For he has spoken, and shall he not make it good? Now all through here we're seeing how God is on Israel's side and how God is not betraying Israel, he's not going against Israel, he's keeping his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for Israel, and he's using Balaam against this Gentile king who wanted Israel destroyed, and he's still playing both sides against the middle or straddling the fence, uh, kind of talking about how good God is and how he'll do what he says. He says, Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He has not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither has he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. He has, as it were, the strength of the unicorn. And he said, There's no enchantment, no divination against Jacob. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, what has God worked? God had worked great works in Israel up to this point. He said, Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion and lift himself as a young lion. He shall not lie down until he eat of the prey and drink the blood of the slain. And Balak said to Balaam, Neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. So now he's saying, it's obvious you're not going to curse them. Well, don't start blessing them either. At least be neutral here and let me do my thing, whatever it is. If you can't get God, to side with me. But Balaam answered and said to Balak, Told not I you, saying all that the Lord speaks, that I must do. And Balak said to Balaam, Come, I pray you, I will bring you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse me with them from there. So he did this again. Uh, Chapter 24, Balaam saw that it pleased the Eternal to bless Israel. And he went not, as he had at other times, to seek enchantments or go to the demons. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And then he talked about the blessings that God had brought upon Israel. That's an integral part of this story and what God is reminding this nation of there in Micah, chapter 6. But I've taken care of you. And here, I won't go through it for the sake of time, but saying, or Balaam is saying, God has blessed Israel all the way through. Uh, verse 12 Balaam said to Balak, Spoke I not also to your messengers, which you sent to me, saying, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I can't go beyond what God tells me to, good or bad, uh, of my own mind, but what the eternal says, that will I speak. And now, behold, I go to my people. Come, therefore, and I will advertise you what this people shall do to your people in the latter days. So he's turning this thing around and showing what God's people are going to do to Moab, to Ammon, to Edom, to Midian in the latter days. So the latter day fulfillment is going to be a lot different than this particular story. Now I think we can begin to see more clearly why God used this particular example in Micah 6 instead of a plethora of other things he could have used to show how he had taken care of Israel in the past. But here he's giving us an opportunity to go back and examine this story and see what God is going to do in the end time. Let's go on and see the rest of this then in the next few verses. This is about Israel against these nations who were against Israel at that time in the latter days. And he took up his parable and he said Balaam and said Balaam the son of Beor or has said and the man whose eyes are open has said. He says I see clearly, God has shown me, he has said, which heard the words of God, speaking of himself, and knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. So God showed me, in a trance, what would happen in the latter days. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not near. So this is far off in the latter days. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. Now, we saw that seven, eight, even principal men would come out of the remnant of God's people there in Micah 5 and smite the Assyrian, And we know from uh, Zechariah and from uh, the last verses of Haggai, that God is going to make Zerubbabel, the leader of the two witnesses, a signet or a flag or a sign from God, a star out of Jacob, if you will, and a scepter or a ruler will rise out of Israel. Uh, And it won't be out of physical Israel because... I can show you at least three prophecies that at least one of our leaders, and probably two of them, are going to be killed here in the end time. But God is going to raise up a man of God to be the one to cause God's spiritual Israel to do what he says there in Micah 4, and that is, he will give them a sharp, become a sharp threshing instrument. To destroy. And also, he says that, I think it's in Isaiah 40 or 41, I believe it's 40, end of it, where he will make us a sharp threshing instrument. Now, the little remnant of the church is not going to go up to war against the beast and the false prophet in the sense of conventional warfare, but he's going to give power to his two witnesses from Revelation 11 to go out and cause plagues of blood and other kinds of the plagues of Egypt as they see fit, wherever they feel it is necessary to do so. And it is going to cause all kinds of difficulty and give them power over the nations and over even the beasts and the false prophet, not to destroy them, because God will take them by the map of the neck and throw them into the fire at the end of all this but they will think they have won when they kill the two witnesses until three and a half days later when they come up. So there will be a world war, for, if you will, between the beast and the false prophet and the two witnesses of God. So God is going to raise up two men to do things that Moses did, to do things that others have done in the past, and even greater works, as he told the disciples. So this man will rise and smite the corners of Moab, and Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies, and Israel shall do valiantly. Uh, That's Esau. Well, that is the punishment against Esau for the damage that the Zionist Jews, Edomites, are doing To Israel right now, and they're going to laugh at our calamity when we fall, as the book of Obadiah makes very clear. Israel shall do valiantly, but that's not physical Israel. They'll be in captivity. This will be spiritual Israel, the church. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion, and shall destroy him the remains of the city. So God is going to give Zerubbabel, in particular, power and dominion. And of course, it all uh, is a type of Christ himself who's coming to take dominion over the whole earth. But this is ahead of that where he comes and dwells with us according to Zechariah 1 and 2 and gives power to his remnant church against Satan and the whole world. He will have deceived all the world except for God's remnant who build his temple and build Jerusalem and are protected in Zion as the scriptures clearly show. And when he looked on Amalek, he took up his parable and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his latter end shall be that uh, he perish forever. And he looked on the Canaanites and took up his parable and said, Strong is your dwelling place, and you put your nest in a rock. Uh, that said of uh, Esau and the uh, Edomites. Nevertheless, the Canaanites shall be wasted until Asher shall carry you away captive Assyria. And he took up his parable and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? And ships shall come from the coast of Chittim, and shall afflict Asher, and shall afflict Eber, and he also shall perish forever. And Balaam rose up and went out and returned to his place, and Balak went his way. So God used this whole scenario to show what will happen here in the latter days against Ammon, Moab, and Edom in particular, whom we are surrounded by at the moment. Now very interestingly in chapter 25, I'll not go through it, but Israel, in spite of this, uh, began having uh, whoredoms with the daughters of Moab and with the uh Midianites, the ones that God says in the end will be destroyed by his people, spiritual Israel. But God was upset with this because we weren't supposed to be mixing. And he pronounced a curse and said to take all the heads of the people and hang them up, kill them. And everybody who had taken some of the women and joined unto Baal Peor were to be killed as well. And about then, uh, an Israelite was seen, his name was Zimri, taking a Midianitish woman into his tent. And here this man, Phinehas, was standing there watching this whole thing and seeing Israel beginning to hang the, the heads of government and all the people who had sinned So he grabbed the spear, ran in the tent, and thrust Zimri and the woman through, and killed them both. Now God blessed Phineas greatly for that, and the plague only killed 24,000 down in verse 9, and he made a, a covenant of peace with Phineas that would last forever, an everlasting priesthood, verse 13, because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. There is a time to take action. And you don't want to take your arrow and smite the ground gently three times. You want to beat it against the ground six times. If you see something that needs taken care of, you do it with your might. <clears throat> David with Goliath would be a good example of that. Uh, he didn't fool around. He killed him. And Phineas didn't fool around either. He saw something that needed done, and he got the job done. So that's the end of that particular story. Let's go back now to Micah 6. And I think we have a clearer understanding of why he would mention such a huge deliverance as Israel coming out of Mithraim. And then this one in particular, because it has to do with these prophecies of the end time that Micah is here telling us about, and about this country. So, remember what happened back there, that you may know the righteousness of the Eternal, in the verse 5, chapter 6 of Micah. Wherewith shall I come before the Eternal, and bow myself before the High God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the eternal be pleased with thousands of rams, or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? All right, here's an answer. How far do I go? What do I do? What kind of offering can I make to God for my sin? because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and our nation right now is covered in sin, as Isaiah says in chapter 1, sick from the head to the foot. What will it take to displace God's anger and cause Him not to bring this destruction down on our country? Will thousands of burnt offerings... No, because God already said that those never pleased him, that he wasn't in it for that. What was he in it for way back then, and what is he in it for today? Well, read on. He showed me, O man, what is good, and what does the eternal require of you. Is it all these burnt offerings? Is it giving your firstborn son? Is it giving your right in your... Arm in your left leg? What is it God requires? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The Lord's voice cries to the city, and the man of wisdom shall see your name. Hear you the rod, and who has appointed it? All God wants us to do is repent. To obey Him, to serve Him, that is to do justly, to love mercy and not vengeance, and to walk humbly with God. Not with vanity, not with ego, not with our own worship of self, but humbly before God and recognize Him as the sovereign of the universe. That's all He really requires. And when He sees that attitude, He mounts. That's what he is. That's what he does. Because he is God. And those are his qualities. We are to come to have the fruit of his spirit. To think and act as he does. And he's full of mercy. He's humble. He's loving. He's kind. He's all these things. So he says, that's all you have to do is be like me. Have my attitudes, and I will forget my anger. Do you think this nation is going to do that? Not a chance. Jeremiah says, don't even pray for this nation. They will not repent. You're just wasting your breath. That's all they'd have to do. Right there in verse 8. What does God require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? That's the bottom line. That's a memory verse right there. Micah 6, verse 8. God's voice cries to the city, and the man of wisdom shall see your name. They're going to see God's name. Isaiah 44 and 45 say God is going to unearth his treasures that he has kept hid for these thousands of years, and it's going to make the kings of the earth, the leaders of the nations, loose their loins or mess their pants. It's going to scare them so badly. God is going to do incredible things here in the end. And they will see God's name. He says there in Isaiah 45, And they will know from the east to the west, from the rising to the going down of the sun, that he is God. Micah is saying that right here. They'll see his name. Hear you the rod, and who has appointed it? God is going to send his rod, his signet, Zerubbabel, the leader of the two, and the leader of the uh, faithful remnant of God. And they'll see not only the rod that he holds, but they'll see God who has appointed it. God is going to make it very clear who he is as Ezekiel says dozens of times, and they shall know that I am the Eternal. That's what this is all about, is to show all of mankind who God is. They will not repent until, if they survive into the millennium, or come up in the great white throne judgment. But they're going to know, as they die in the seven last plagues, who God is. Verse 10. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is abominable? Do they keep selling you less for more money? Do they keep stealing the wealth of this nation from the people that God gave it to? Yes, they are. Through inflation, through... All kinds of means are using today to do exactly what it's saying here. Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights? For the rich men thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. They're full of violence. They're in the process right now of killing millions of Americans. They're going to start dropping dead like flies as a result of what they have done by releasing this virus and now giving us the so-called vaccines for it. Millions of people are going to die. This is the beginning of the mark of the beast. You won't be able to buy and sell unless you have a vaccination card. And people are going to accept the mark of the beast without even knowing what it is. They think that they are against it. They've read there that they shouldn't take the mark of the beast. That's why Satan has described, has deceived the whole world with pharmacaea, as Revelation 18 says. Pharmacy. What do we call them commonly in America? Drug stores. Let's go to the drug store and get what we need. Satan has deceived this nation, not with just cocaine and marijuana, but with other drugs that are killing us wholesale. The rich men are doing it to us. Bill Gates has said clearly, I will destroy 90% of you. He hasn't put it in those words, I, but he said we need to be, that he will do what he can to do so, along with many of the other leaders of finance and government. That's what they're doing. They're full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful. Fauci lies back and forth, Biden lies. All of them are liars. Therefore also will I make you sick, and smiting you, and making you desolate because of your sins. One-third of us will die of famine and pestilence, disease, and we're well on our way there. I think Satan is being used by God and these men whom he's directing, who are liars and thieves and violent, to do this to us. God is always, and Satan has used, human instruments as well for Balaam. God was using him to get a message he wanted across, and Satan was using him to try to get the message... They like wanted a cross. We know who's going to win, and it isn't Satan. Verse 14, you shall eat, but not be satisfied, and your casting down shall be in the midst of you, and you shall take hold, but shall not deliver. And that which you delivered will I give up to the sword. So, one-third of us will go down with famine and pestilence, and some will take hold and try to hang on, And he'll turn the sword loose on us. And I mentioned at the beginning a possible scenario of how how it will come down. You shall sow, but you shall not reap. You shall tread the olives, but you shall not anoint you with oil. And sweet wine, but you shall not drink wine. For the statutes of Omri are kept, and all the works of the house of Ahab, two of the wickedest kings of ancient Israel, Uh, their works are being perpetrated right now. Ahab married Jezebel. We are characterized as Babylon the Great in Revelation 18, the leader of the whole system of Babylon of the earth, and we have consorted and committed whoredoms with all the nations. We are that Babylon. We are doing the same things that Ahab and Omri did and you walk in their councils. Go back and read about them, and you'll see what's happening in America today. That I should make you a desolation, and the inhabitants thereof, and hissing. Therefore shall you bear the reproach of my people. This is a pretty dire prophecy against our nation in these latter days, and the only ones who will be saved out of it are the few who will follow God, and do as he says, as Matthew 24 clearly lays out, will not accept the beast, will be patient, and will flee uh, from it when it does set up the abomination in the temple. Well, let's read chapter 7. It continues, but it gives some hope for those who will obey. Woe is me. For I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits as the grape gleanings of the vintage. There is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. Interesting, this, this ties in very well with, uh, uh, Amos 8, where we had the, uh, eclipse come across our nation at noon and it became dark across the land, uh, in August of 2017. And there God used the analogy of the summer fruits. Uh, they were ripe about then in July and August, and I think three very, very important dates occurred at that time. We've been over them several times, so I'll not go back, but uh, the understanding of the 430 years God gave us back here that he had taken away in Egypt, the 70 years of Jeremiah's uh, speak spoke of our captivity that occurred with the church and the prophecy in Isaiah 7 of the destruction of Ephraim so we didn't have to worry about it. And then he tells us, don't worry about the conspiracy, uh, but fear him instead. So he gave us that final warning and passed judgment on us in Amos 8 at the end of those periods of time that I just mentioned. And here he is saying, I desired the first ripe fruit, so this is a little later in the year uh, that he's discussing. So let's see what it looks like when he desired the first ripe fruit and it wasn't there. No cluster to eat. We see supply lines diminishing. We see famine encroaching upon our nation, and it's coming uh, very possibly this winter. It's going to get worse and worse and worse day by day and week by week and month by month until the invasion finally occurs and there's civil war in the country, as Jeremiah 50 and 51 clearly say. Verse 2, the good man has perished out of the earth, and there's none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. We're going to see this happen very shortly now. Uh, Things are being said about how the vaxxed uh, need to kill the unvaxxed, and they are rounding up right now, today, in Australia, all the unvaxxed people and putting them into concentration camps, even as some have said ahead of time, that would occur here. Hillary's fun camps, if you will. It's already in Australia. It's starting in Austria, and Germany has now said they are going to round up all those who are unvaccinated. And the Biden administration is saying the same thing. They're making threats here and there if you see them. So they're lying in wait for blood, and every man will kill his brother. Jeremiah 50:51 50, indicate a civil war within our country uh, with ruler against ruler killing each other. So civil war, like our first civil war, is going to happen very shortly now. That they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asks and the judge asks for reward. The Constitution no longer matters in the courts of America. The judges do what they want to do, and they pay no attention to the Constitution. It's a dead piece of paper, and even George Bush called it just another G.D. piece of paper. And the great man, he utters his mischievous desire, so they wrap it up. They're wrapping us up in evil. The best of them is a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. That's our leaders. That's our congressmen. That's our presidents. That's our judges. The day of your watchmen and your visitation comes. Now shall be their perplexity. He says there in Ezekiel 7 and 8, after the 430 years ends, which it did in 2017 from the time the Rona was established as a colony here, a permanent colony, 430 years elapsed and ended in 17, and God said, the judgment will come soon. When And Ezekiel said, it has come, it has come, it is near, it has come, it won't be like the sounding again of the uh, the mountains, the echo, but it's coming very soon. And this started on us at the end of 2019 and 20, and it's getting worse day by day, and it will never get better until we are completely destroyed. This is our perplexity that has been warned about, and now it is upon us. We are going through it, and it will get worse day by day. Trust not in a friend, but not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of your mouth from her that lies in your bosom. It's going to get in this country where you can't trust anybody, not even your own husband or wife, or they will betray you. Doesn't Matthew twenty four say that before the gospel is preached around the world as a witness by the two witnesses, not Herbert Armstrong, that Christian will turn in Christian, we will betray our brethren. That's what Mike is saying here. This is the time that Matthew 24 is talking about. Don't trust anybody. For the son dishonors the father, the father rises against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. They're training our children right now, as good little commie Joe children, to turn in their parents. Therefore, I will look to the Eternal. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. All we have to do is walk humbly before God, do justly and love mercy, turn to God and everything will be fine rejoice not against me o my enemy when i fall i shall arise when i sit in darkness the lord shall be a light to me god's going to take care of us just like he told david all through the psalms i will bear the indignation of the eternal because i have sinned i have sinned against him The whole church sinned and went Laodicean. We sinned and got spewed out. Now we have to repent. And that's what Micah is calling for. When you see this nation falling apart and headed for destruction, you repent and turn to God. Until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me, he will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. So those who will repent, God is going to take care of. He says, flee to your chambers there in Isaiah. Go to Zion, where you will be protected. Doesn't say anything about Petra for crying out loud. All the way through, it's Zion. I will behold his righteousness. Then she that is mine enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her, which said to me, Where is the Lord your God? Oh, God's going to deliver you, is he? Remember what they said to Christ as he hung on the stake? Oh, where's God? Where's your deliverer? They'll taunt us the same way, because we are going through some of what the nation is going through before God draws us out and the final destruction comes. Well, where's the church now? Where's God? You were the true church of God. Ha, ah, ah, ha, ah, ha. Look at you now. Well, they got reason to laugh at us. God destroyed us. Spiritual Israel got destroyed the same way physical Israel is now headed into. In the days that your walls are to be built, and that day shall the decree be far removed. God is going to use his church, his 10% increase that he brings, his remnant, to build the walls of the temple and to build Jerusalem. Jews aren't going to do it. Christ divorced them in Matthew 23 a long time ago until they accept his New Testament ministry in him, which they have not and will not do. So he's going to use his church to do it. In that day also he shall come up even to you from Assyria and from the fortified cities and the fortress even to the river, and from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. (laughs) Notwithstanding, the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. So God says here, I will take care of those who will turn back to me and truly worship me and my son. Them will I honor, them will I respect. The nation is going down. So then he turns again to the church. Feed your people with your rod, the flock of your heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Places where God uh, blessed Israel in the past and will again in his original promised land. According to the days of your coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. He left them in Egypt for 430 years, brought them out, and blessed them. He gave us back those 430 years, which we abused, misused, and now are going back into captivity just like we were in Egypt. So the 430 years came around, and now it has come around again. According to the days of your coming out of the land of Egypt, I'll show him marvelous things. The nation shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, they shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the eternal, our God, and shall fear because of you. Because of who? Because of the remnant of God's people who will be a light to the world on the mountains of Zion and the two who go out and pronounce plagues and death and destruction to the world. They'll fear because of the remnant of God's people. Who is a God like to you that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He is going to draw to stir a remnant, according to Haggai, to come and work with the two witnesses to build the temple. That's who's going to do it. He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He loves it. And if people will repent and come and serve him, he will show that mercy. He says it in Zephaniah, right there where he's talking about the... uh, decree of financial destruction and the crash that is coming on the finances of this nation and the world. And he says, come out of it, go where I want you, and if you will walk humbly before me, maybe I will deliver you. So we have that confidence given us in Zephaniah, here in Micah, and in Zechariah 1, 2, 3, and 4, and many other places through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. All of us who will repent of our Laodiceanism and turn to him with a few names that remain in dead Sardis, worldwide Church of God, will then form the Philadelphia era of the church, and they will be the ones that God uses that he will see through tribulation. Philadelphia does not yet exist, never, has, in this end time, the dregs of Sardis, which is dead worldwide, and those who repent out of Laodicea, the rest of us. And he will turn and have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This isn't directed particularly at Judah. It is primarily against about the the ten tribes. But he does mention Samaria and Jerusalem, Israel and Judah here. So he's talking about all Israel, not the Jews, not the ten tribes, but all Israel who will turn to Him and worship Him in the way that He wants to be worshipped. And He will see us through and deliver us from all this that is coming down on our nation right now as we speak. And will get worse and worse until the nation is destroyed, but those who will walk humbly before Him will be delivered out of it. You can have faith and trust and confidence in that. So we must do our part and walk humbly before our God."